we are actually in service of the people and the communities that we create. We forget that in the stride of deliverables and all the other things. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to interior designer Kia Weatherspoon. Kia is a force of nature and has spent the last 15 years defying every design stereotype. She's specifically challenging the notion that interior design spaces are a luxury reserved for only a select few, rather than something that should be regarded as a standard necessity for all. She founded her studio Determined by Design over 10 years ago based on her practice of design equity and has since become the go-to for interior design in economically challenged communities. The ripple effect of her work is prompting housing developers, agencies, and industry partners in these communities to take notice and to do better. As an advocate and educator in business leadership, equity, and diversity, Kia has been recognized as a hip designer for good by Interior Design Magazine, a part of the Washington Business Journal's 40 Under 40 class, She received the International Interior Design Association Luna Textile Anna Hernandez Visionary Award and was recently named 2022 Designer of the Year by ICFF Interiors. As you'll hear, prior to becoming a designer, Kia served in the military, a foundational experience that has impacted her deeply and informed her design philosophy. Kia is leading a meaningful charge in the name of design equity, and in doing so, is elevating the entire field to a higher vibration. Here's Kia. My name is Kia Weatherspoon. I am in denial, but I live in Atlanta, Georgia, where I teach full-time as a professor at SCAD, and I also run my business, Determined by Design, remotely. I feel like every person should feel seen and acknowledged and valued through the spaces that they traverse through. And I know I do it because I didn't have that. And I don't want that for other people. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. 
and it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Well, I can't think of a purer reason for doing what you're doing than identifying a need that went unmet in your life, and now you are making sure that it doesn't go unmet in others. More power to you. So let's go back to that childhood. Can you paint the picture for me? So I grew up in Portsmouth, Virginia. I don't have very vivid childhood memories. My mom was a teacher. She was a diehard educator. My dad was an electrician slash alcoholic slash drug addict. I grew up with my brother, Cody, and we were a tight knit little family of four. I was always very talkative, very outgoing. Recently, I was purging some report cards and I found one from like the second or third grade. It's like, Kia's a great student, but she's very talkative. I'm like, today, (laughs) that works in my favor. (laughs) Yes. I think a big thing that defined my family's life was my dad was in and out of rehab and jail. And then when I was in middle school going in to high school, my brother was incarcerated for 15 years. Virginia is a Commonwealth state in the South. Um, And he was a first time offender and he got over a sentence and he got 15 years in prison. Once that happened, there are no rosy pictures of me in Portsmouth, Virginia. Yeah, I'm not surprised you don't have vivid memories. I try to think about them. And when I can say I can tell you nothing about the childhood home I grew up in. I do have pictures of this like hideous, like pink and white cream wall covering. And I'm in this hot pink sweatsuit with all this sass. But that's all I have for you, seriously, about the home I grew up in. I think I always knew I was bigger than Portsmouth, Virginia. And I never felt grounded there in very pivotal moments of my life. Uh, I didn't feel seen by like my mom, my dad or my brother. And I was always starved for attention. Can I ask you if you didn't feel seen because you didn't feel understood or were they just completely involved in their own issues? I didn't feel seen because my brother always needed everything. And I remember when he was incarcerated, again, my mom's a teacher. My dad had a job where he was either in jail or in rehab. So we didn't really have really good financial resources. Everything became about Cody. Like everything became about what Cody needed. Cody was going through the penal system. Cody was on trial. Cody, 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 Cody. And then I'm like, anybody? Anybody? Kia? No? Oh, okay. And look, I can laugh about it now and it's not to diminish this experience, but I think I've learned to stop letting it define me. And life doesn't happen to you. 
It happens for you. All the things and the who I am now is because of that. Don't get me wrong. Me and my family alike still like super close. I'm I'm happy to hear that. And by the way, you are exuding resilience in your just in everything that you're saying. So this is not a pity party, but I'm really grateful that you're being so candid. Growing up when somebody else is like pulling focus, and it's also kind of worthwhile, you understand why the energy and attention went to Cody. And at the same time, you've got to honor the formative impact it had on you. Oh, absolutely. I was only acknowledged in my family when I did something good or I was successful. And I was like, oh, so if I do something successful, I'm acknowledged? Oh, then I came super, super fucking successful, right? Like I did a good thing. In school, I was seen. I did this thing. I got an award. I was seen. So it became this narrative, do the thing, then you'll be seen, get the award, then you'll be seen. And now I got all the awards, honey. <laughs> I know. I was researching you. I was like, I can't say all these in the intro. It'll be like 20 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. But there was a point where I had to like gut check later on in life. How much validation do I really need from external things, an award, a recognition, success, I really had to learn to validate and see myself in ways that no one else did. And I think it was my upbringing that forced me to do that in different ways. But also it made me who I am. Like it made me hyper successful. Now, remember I said, I can't tell you about my childhood home. Oh, honey, but I can tell you about the first prison I visited. It was such a visceral reaction for me. And that was the first time I walked in a space And I just knew I didn't belong there. No one else belonged there. It was the first time I thought about space and how space affected other people in a very visceral, visceral way. Can I ask you to unpack that a little bit? I've never been in a prison. I've seen them on TV and I don't know how realistic that is, but I can understand they are for the most part designed to cage people, not to rehabilitate them, not to comfort them. And I mean, I think there's inherent flaws in that methodology for so many reasons. But can you describe just how undignified the whole experience was? The first thing is, depending on where your loved one is, you drive sometimes eight to 12 hours. You stay at a crappy comfort inn in the middle of nowhere. Uh, This was like in between Tennessee and West Virginia. And you got to think about the scale. I think I was like 14, maybe like five two. You first walk into just bars and these loud like clanks, a lock, literally like this lock shutting. And you kind of walking in, you're like, I'm going to get back out, right? It's so intimidating and just absolute. And I'm just entering the building now. So you enter in, you hear this thing kind of like shut you down from an auditory perspective. And then it's gray and drab and... Not dirty in the sense of dirt, but it's just gloomy. You're like, oh, okay. There's no seating. There's no chairs. The family that you're with can be in there. And then you're in that drab space. Then you walk in and someone's looking at you through a plate glass window. You say who you're here to see. And I'm separated between bars, concrete, plated glass. And then there's like a a door after they check all the things that you can then now go through, and then you get searched. 
what's on TV is actualized. The perspective from that of a 13-year-old girl, I just remember feeling scared and uncertain. You go through the doors, you get searched, and then you go into these visitation rooms and all you see is cinder block that's painted yellow because that's a happy color. <laughs> and then there are these artistic murals of like a seascape or a jungle. Typically the inmates would paint and then there would be dark wood round tables and plastic burgundy chairs. In fluorescent light, no windows. And my brother, he moved through three different prisons when he was incarcerated for 15 years. And they were all some version of that. And I remember I used to get so angry with him because we'd have to drive eight hours. And I, every visit, I was angry with him. That I approached every prison with anger. You approach these visits with anger. So as someone who you know, hasn't had the opportunity to emotionally mature yet, you're only 13, that's a natural response. But at a time when the family is fractured, anything to make the visiting experience more kind and compassionate seems like it would do wonders for everyone involved. Oh, absolutely. At 13, I was angry. Then it went from how I felt to just you look around the room and my brother, he didn't have any kids at the time, but you look around the room and you would see kids playing with their father or their grandfather. And I would start to think like, oh man, that sucks for them. Um, you would see babies, you would see grandparents visiting their grandsons. You would see women visiting their spouses. You would see parents visiting their son. Ethnicity didn't really range that much. As I got older, I was just like, yo, this is no place for anyone to be with their loved one. And then I even started looking at like, I wouldn't want to work in a place like this eight to 12 hours a day. And I started thinking about the experience for the guards, right? I had a very long time and a lot of visitation to think about how indignified and humane it was for everyone who interacted with that space. And you drive off or you drive up and you could hear the guys like banging on the window saying, hey, hi, not even necessarily to their family member, but just to see people, right? And sometimes like if your friend knew you you had a visit, they'd be like, hey, that's Spoon's sister. Hey, Spoon's sister. <laughs> and you'd hear these men in these teeny tiny windows just clamoring for a connection um, to outside. And maybe they didn't get visitors, right? That's how you left. What an impactful experience. And I think it's quite telling that you remember the prison so much better than you remember your childhood home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 You kind of painted a picture of teenage angst that involved like hyper achievement coupled with anger and prison visits. Yeah, absolutely. So that drive, which was a, you know, coping response in your teenage years, clearly you still have some of it, but you yeah, adjusted no. it. So it's not maladaptive well, anymore. Well, so, so I leaned into my personality and myself very early on from a place of wanting to be seen, attention. I knew very early on, like I was, I could talk myself out of anything. I was kind of like mediocre academically. This was a very pivotal moment for me when I was in high school. I had got expelled from high school my like sophomore year going into my junior year because I had bought a razor blade to school. 
it sounds like, oh, no, but why I bought the razor blade is quite comical. My mom had showed me how to get lint balls off of my polyester pants from 579, and I had to use a straight razor. <laughs> so I took the straight razor to school to get the lint balls off my polyester pants from this cheap fashion store. Someone told them I had a straight razor and whether I bought them there to get lint balls off my cheap pants or not, I brought a weapon to school. I got expelled and it was like four weeks left in the school year. This is when I was like, you know what? This thing happened. It was my own fault, whatever. And I was like, I'm still going to graduate with my class on time. Like I refuse not to graduate with my class. So after that, I would take extra classes every summer, every semester after that. And then I graduated on time with my class. Now, my mom is telling this story to a room full of her colleagues and friends when she's retiring from the Chesapeake public school system with like 30 years of service. And I'm like, why is she telling everybody this hideous story? And she goes, That is the first time I knew that my daughter was determined by design. Oh, that's where the name comes from. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to get you there, girl. Thank you for staying with me. In my core, there is nothing I cannot do if I do not set my mind to it. At my essence, I am determined by design. Resilient, determined. But that was the first time in this thing where uh, something I did silly but wrong but I would not let that hinder how I was going to progress or move forward. I was also into dance, ballet quite a bit. That was kind of my outlet. I initially wanted to go to college for dance and I I didn't have the grades. So I went to a junior college in Petersburg, Virginia. And then when I couldn't quite afford that, I went into the military and I joined the Air Force in 2001. You were deployed shortly after 9-11, yes? Yeah, I got to my first duty station in Wichita, Kansas. And that was in July of 2001. And then September 11th happened. um, And I was on the first of five deployments to the Middle East. I was at Al-Udid Air Base in Doha, Qatar. It was a bare base. I was in a tent with about 14 other women and I needed some privacy. I needed to cry. And I was a prideful little 19-year-old and I wasn't going to cry in front of these women. It was my first time out of the country, my first time away from my family. I took some sheets I hung it from the top of my tent and I made three sheet walls around my cot. And that was the first space I ever created. And I bawled like a baby for 15 minutes. It was something about how that space, it healed me and bought me comfort and bought me solace. And I would do that four more times over the course of my military career on active duty. Hands down, the military was one of the best things I ever did. I want to talk more about that. But before we move on from that really formative experience where you made yourself some privacy with the sheets, like there's something that really stands out to me about that, which is there's something really, really great about the way you took matters into your own hands so that you could care for yourself. Oh, yeah. I was like, look, if I'm going to do this, I got to let these tears out real quick. <laughs> what got happen first? That is, <laughs> that is so powerful. I needed it. I needed it. Oh, I'm a crier, so I know how badly it's needed. But I just grew up in a in a time where I don't think people valued it that much. It was the only emotion I knew in that extreme. In That's that extreme, an, yeah, in extreme circumstance. Yeah. Woo. 
Okay, so you said the military was the best thing you did. Let's hear about it. It's at the height of the war. September 11th just happened. It was one of the few times you just saw people come together for something bigger than themselves, right? Again, I'm 19, so... I remember we'd be in like a little tent, little tent area and there'd be like games and pool tables and stuff. And I would hear people say like, I just had to do something. And this was it. They joined out of sheer just desire to serve their country and do something bigger than themselves. It was not about politics. I had never been around anything like that. People were wanting to serve at the most basic level through joining the military. Putting themselves in great sort of peril and discomfort to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. I can, I can feel your collective camaraderie swelling right now. Yeah. I remember you would do shift work. I was working with this guy and we were trying to figure out whose music we were going to listen to. He was like, well, I don't really listen to rap music. Um, he's like, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. Like, I've never been around a black person before, so we don't listen to that type of music. And I was like, for real? And he was like, yeah. And then we just had this whole dialogue, right? At the end of the day, it didn't matter who whose music we listened to. We just learned a little bit more about each other and more about tolerance because we're there for something bigger than ourselves. Not what well, I want to listen to my music and you want to listen to your music Right. It's not it's not a situation like college where you're sort of scanning and choosing your friends based on similar things that you like or your interests. It's more like we're our bigger interest is serving the country. Yeah. What are what are our little differences? Because that's going to make this interesting. Right. If we can yeah, get to yeah. know each other. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's just like eh, it doesn't matter, guys. And I think sometimes we forget things are bigger than ourselves. I think we forget it all of all the fucking time. It taught me how to respect the person, not their title, right? You could have rank in the military, but attitude reflects leadership. If everybody in the office is or on the shift is talking trash, they got bad energy, that's a direct reflection of leadership. Um, it's not about your title. It's not about your rank. It's how you treat people and how you respect people. And it also taught me how to speak respectfully and as long as I'm respectful and I put sir or ma'am on the end of it, I could say anything I want. Those are the things that I got from the military that are invaluable. Oh, oh, I would do it again the exact same way every single time. Do you still have friends in the military? Do you, are you still connected? I did a four total years on active duty. And then I did another 17 years in between the Guard and the Reserve. So I did a total of 21 years of, of military service. I have a lot of great, great friends. The, the nostalgia of it wore off around year 10. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, it's so funny. My military ca career was bookended by two extremes. And I think, you know, Sometimes we stay in, in a thing because we think we should. But the minute you can't show up with 100% integrity, giving 100%, it is time to walk away. The minute you just hang around and do, and you pussyfoot and do the bare minimum, because you know I can, there's a reason and you shouldn't be there. I talk about the start of my military career. Everybody's doing something bigger than themselves. And then I book in my military career in June of 2020, 
George Floyd was just murdered. I'm living in D.C. It's a racial uprising happening. They activate the National Guard. They put me in like riot gear and a helmet and a shield. And I'm just like, I'm HR guys. Why am I out in these streets? But I'm also a black woman in the nation's capital as people are protesting. Oh, fuck. Everything in my being is like, I can't do this. Contractually, I had to. Again, like I said, there were years leading up to this, like, it's time for me to retire. It's time for me to retire. But this was the first time I was really conflicted because I knew this was no place for me to be. I was in a white man's military. I just couldn't do it. I hear you. And the story that you told communicated to me, like my body is short circuiting right now, trying to imagine the conflict that you must have felt. But this is also goes back to the, to the things the military instills in you, which is why I, I have such a love for it. It teaches you to be a good wingman. The racial uprising happens. They activate the DC guard. Now, technically my job is HR at this point. So HR, uh, we're supposed to know where all the people are, right? So we go to the base. Everyone's clamoring. They're getting gear. And one of my coworkers, somehow they were like, raise your hand if you have your gear, blah, 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 blah. Now she raises her hand. The rest of them kind of like, oh, I don't have mine. And they're like, Wilson, come with us. And I'm like, oh, but she doesn't have a wingman. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to let Sergeant Wilson not have a wingman from our shop, our office. So I go with Sergeant Wilson because she needed a wingman. And then she and I were the only people from our shop who were directly on the street in the riot gear. Everyone else quasi got out of it, but because... You always have to be a good wingman. She and I were in that sh- those streets for 12 and 18 hour days at the height of all that madness going on. And she and I both felt like as two black women, like, why are we out here? I still could not not be a good wing a wingman in that moment when I could just do like everybody else. Like, oh, I ain't got mine either. It taught me that it was bigger than myself and it was about being a good wing woman. You can't let her go out there. Yeah, you got to be the wingman. It's, it's just, it's culture. I wouldn't have gotten these life lessons any other way. Hands down, one of the best things I ever did. Well, I, I love the way you tell them. As gripping as it is, it's also really inspiring. I see your conflict and I'm glad you got out of there when you yeah, did. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, <laughs> me too. But, but and I, I will say this. So it's like, all right, and how did you become an interior designer? When I had got out of the active duty military in 2004, the war was supposedly over. I remember just being like, I enjoy creating those spaces. I want to do that. What's that called? That's how I became an interior designer. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. 
So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So many people stumble into design, like they don't even know it's a profession, but somehow it impacts their life and they ask somebody like, what's that called? And they're led to design. And that's beautiful. And I, I want to hear about your undergraduate experience because I'd also really love to hear about your thesis work. I left the military. I went and got an associate's degree and I worked briefly at a hotel management company. Um, and that was actually my first quasi-design job. And the first time I realized the things that really matter matter are work ethic and selling. I was able to upsell my interest in design at this point to a position as a design coordinator. Back then, you couldn't work full-time and get a design degree at night. I learned another valuable lesson. I'm not motivated by money. And I remember when I decided to get my bachelor's degree, I had a plan, told it to my CEO. He was a perfect type of first CEO out of the military. He was rich, white, and sexist. And I remember him looking down my shirt, and, and I'm not a busty woman, and he'd be like, I just gave you all this money. You can either work here or you could go back to school, but you can't do both. I knew right then I was going back to school full time and no man could or could not tell me how I could dictate the path of my career. And that was a perfect lesson for me in that moment. And I stumbled across a college slash art gallery called Moore College of Art and Design. It's in Philadelphia. And I remember just seeing like the gallery spaces and it was all these amazing artists and artisans and makers from fat. And I was like, oh my God, this is a school? Can I, <laughs> can I get in here? And I did. And then the first day of class, I'm all excited. I'm an older student and I'm looking around and I'm like, there aren't any men in here. There are no boys. And it was an all women's college. <laughs> Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and I was just like, okay. And when I say it was the, I'm going to get emotional talking about it. It was the best thing I could have ever experienced. I had never been in a more supportive, encouraging environment ever in my life. 
than being at this small women's college in the center of Philadelphia. It was glorious. It sounds like a garden oasis in the middle of like... It literally is. Brutal patriarchy. Yeah, it, 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 it was just talent on talent. And I remember... I never saw myself as an artist. I saw myself as a creative and a designer. And I remember it's like my third year there. And when I say I was with these with young women who I swear they came out of the womb creating. And my third year, this girl named Brenda Matthews, she looks over at my work and she goes, Kia, did you make that? I was like, yeah. She's like, you've gotten so much better. I was like, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was just boosting my confidence. It was it was always just so lovely. They poured into me in a way that no one else really had. My undergraduate thesis come a full full circle moment is all my classmates wanted to do hotels. One girl was doing like a cruise ship for Disney, a boutique retail space. And I was like, actually I want to do a prison facility for 75 men. And that was my undergraduate thesis. And everyone was like a prison. I was like, yep, that was what I did, and I wanted to pay homage to my brother through this new creative career path that I was on. And were you able to sort of reimagine a space of incarceration that was also like... absolutely. I remember the way I had space planned it, the the concept was a a part of like Newton's law of motion that an object stays at rest until something pushes it forward. So this facility was all about rehabilitation and forward motion. And even the way I space planned it, no one ever moved in a backwards motion or went in a circle. Because when you think about circularity in the prison system, it's really translate to recidivism. Um, so I didn't want these men to move in a backwards motion. They always moved in a forward motion. The way the kids came into the space, there were these soft lounge and seating. There was this huge natural skylight. There was soft seating in the common area in the men's rooms. I did this custom Korean desk bed combination with these curved soft edges in the actual cells in this soft blue navy color. We had carpet tile because my rationale was if I put them in a soft chair, but they're still separated from society, what is the punishment? And if you put people in a box, how do you in a box, a cage box, how do you think they will come out? The the punishment is imprisonment, but we don't have to dehumanize them while they're in there. Yes, absolutely. And and I think we forget that people who commit crimes, they commit crimes because of mental health, home environment, lack of education, and lack lack of opportunity. You know, and I got so much pushback in my critique. Well, what if it was a murderer? And what if it was this? And, you know, 60% of people who recidivate are nonviolent offenders. It's not the murderer who was in jail for 20 plus some years. You know, it was really about humanizing people and wanting to re- rehabilitate them. And the prison that I designed became the thing that pushed them in a forward motion out into society. I mean, it sounds like you're very clearly identifying your goals, your values, why you're in this, what the power of design can be. Now you have to go and get a job and work. You've already been harassed by a rich, sexist shirt looker downer. Yeah. Um, 
So like you probably are like, um, that's not for me. So what are your first few steps into the professional world? Like as you are charting your own course? Well, now, now our industry, what is the sexy thing to do? Everybody wants to do hospitality and boutique hotels. Sexy is glamorous. It's all the things. So that's what I wanted to do. I first went down the path of still staying in the hospitality space. I did a brief stint in high-end residential design as an intern. And then I met this woman on like a shadow day. She was like, I like people, but I don't want to work with them. And then she told me all about multifamily design. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she was like, we don't work with individual homeowners, but we did get to create homes for multiple people. And that's how I transitioned from hospitality um, to multifamily design. So multifamily design, you're working with the developer. You're not working with the owners of the home who are known to be quite involved oh, and, yes. and fussy. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so I, I fall into doing multifamily design and then I immediately start doing high-end luxury multifamily design in the D.C. area. And that was the first two or three years after graduation. That was kind of my trajectory. And I'm working at this great firm. And again, our industry is notorious for this. I was working late hours, pulling all-nighters. And college is cute. At 31, it was not. I remember it was my first big design project. I was up all night, went home, took a 30 minute nap on the floor. Don't ask me why I had a bed. I showered and then I went and presented to the client, did a great job. And then we went back to the office. My boss didn't say like, take a comp day, leave early, nothing. We just kept going. And that wasn't a good feeling for me. And two weeks later, we're sitting in this meeting and she's like, Kia, you don't seem like you're here. And I think I always know when it's time to move. Again, like I said, When I can't show up as my whole self and give 100%, I got to go. And that's okay. So I gave my two weeks notice and I was like, okay, what are you going to do now? Oh, man, you gave notice without a plan. Yeah, girl. (laughs) (laughs) You're so badass. (laughs) Or or ignorant. (laughs) One or the other. No, I think like... Two things happened. I was like, all right. I was like, I could go get a job at another firm. I was like, well, I want to go work somewhere where ha- they have leadership that looks like me. And this is 2012 now. And I said, you know what? I'm going to start my own business. Just like that. Just like that. I said, I'm going to start my own business. And I have this comical video of me sitting in my car in the parking lot outside my job. Like, I just quit my job. I don't have no money. I don't know where my next rent check is coming from. <laughs> I started my business that that day I quit and I decided to start a business in 2012. And I knew immediately it was going to be called Determined by Design. And and that was it. Like granularly, what did that mean? Did you just like go home and open a laptop and that's your business? Okay. It meant like, (laughs) all right, I'm going to do this business. What do I need to start a business? So I had a little little Google search, Uh, you know, because you take professional practice in college. Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes. But they didn't talk about this part. So then I used the interwebs and figure out all the steps that I needed to take, how many of those steps I could take that required no money and could get free resources from the city. And then when the resource wasn't free, I would sometimes not pay my student loan bill for the month to pay the $600 to do my LLC application. 
Yeah. Okay. So prioritizing and getting scrappy with your resources and stretching. Did you have collaborators? It's just me. Your fortitude is impressive. In the in the military, they tell you this thing like, no one is going to want more for your career than you. No one is going to be a better advocate for you than you. I say all the time, I am my own hero. And as a woman, right, you know, you win the awards and, and you're supposed to say, oh, I'm so humbled. And then they ask the question, who was your mentor? Me. Me, motherfucker. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I say that because this is where those, those, those childhood triggers would come into play. I remember early on my in my career when I started my business, right? Because I knew nothing. And I'm like reaching out to people like, hey, you're fancy in, in industry or industry adjacent. Can I meet with you for coffee? I, I just want to learn your story. Oh, honey, when I say they would not respond to me and I'm pretty persistent, I would re- email them like five and six and seven times, not asking them for a job. That same little girl who's wanting some acknowledgement. And I heard nothing from them. No response. Now, this one, I get a little petty and I've worked through it with my, my therapist. Years later, one of those women reached out to me on LinkedIn. I was like, oh my God, I heard about you. We should connect. I was like, actually, we should not because back in 2012, bitch, you ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just me. And you know, it was me who figured it out every step of the way. Uh, and in all seriousness, I don't have no job, so I need some money. So the first thing I did was like, how do you get a client? This woman reached out to me about doing a nonprofit project for this organization called Room to Rebloom. And they created healing home environments for domestic violence survivors. They were a new nonprofit organization and they were doing transitional housing. Again, multifamily, right? Multiple units, corridors, common areas. I said, oh my God, I will provide pro bono design services. I have a new business with no clients and no money, but let me do free work. <laughs> oh, but I can see why you couldn't say no, because this is already right up your alley ding, in terms ding, of like ding, creating ding. healing spaces. The universe will show you exactly what you need. You got to be patient. I go to the building. It's 12 women, 32 kids. I'm like overexcited. And they're like, first of all, girl, calm down. And then they say to me, we don't need interior design services. That's not what we need right here. There was this gut check moment where one, I calmed down. And two, it was a moment to kind of, to just realize like, I've been there where I didn't realize how much my space could impact and change my life. You don't know what you don't know. It ended up going from, we don't need this to for me engaging with them in the design process, not for them. That's a very clear designation I like to make. I designed with them. And one of the things that I loved was that none of these women could tell me what they needed, but they could always tell me what the other woman needed. She has teenagers, so she needs this. She has a newborn, so she needs this. And that was just really powerful how collectively they knew what their neighbor's needs were. Because collectively, we're socialized to look out for, for other people's needs yeah. and to deny our own. And it went from, we don't need this, to man, I thought this was stuff I could only see on TV. And then this is the kicker for me. There were two moments. One one was like, is this something I could do one day? And I was like, yeah, you can. Sometimes with our industry, like it's all about the big glossy reveal and the pretty picture. And we had that. We had those moments. And when we did the reveal, this woman came up to me and she said, Miss Kia, when I walked into this room, I realized change was possible for me. Oh my God, Kia. I know. I know. And 
I felt it in my soul. Right then I knew the people who need access to well-designed spaces the most, they don't know they don't have it. They don't know they need it and they don't have an advocate. And I built my entire business around being that advocate. That's how I knew what the mission of Determined by Design was going to be. I knew right then the work that I was going to do. It was 12 women and 32 kids, and they all looked like me. They could be my sisters, my cousins, right? My aunts, my nephews, my nieces. My people needed access to elevated spaces. And this is what I tell people all the time about starting a business, right? And remember when I said that not being motivated by money. Had I operated from a place of scarcity, like, oh, you start a business, I need money, I need money, I need money, I need money. I wouldn't have took that nonprofit project. Sometimes you have to assess what is the bigger opportunity. And sometimes that is not necessarily associated with a dollar value. Because that statement that woman made to me, I could never quantify that to a billable hour. It had to be about the work, not the money. And that's what we do at Determined But We do the work. And I still make a lot of money, though. Don't get it. Through. <laughs> good. Good. You deserve comfort and security and also freedom. But, but what Determined by Design does, we focus on design equity. And that is creating elevated spaces for people, Black, Brown, Indigenous people in economically challenged communities. And that is what we do. We do affordable, transitional, supportive, senior housing. We design for the people. And in the last 10 years, you've racked up over 2,700 underrepresented families are living in design equity spaces. Wait, wait, wait. We we just did a little data dump the, this over the holiday break. It's actually 4,000. 4,000? 4, <laughs> Hot damn. I was just like, oh, man, we did that. Well, and you've racked up a lot of industry awards and accolades along the way, which... I mean, does that make you feel seen a little bit, finally? No, nah, because when the awards came, I had seven years of just doing the work. So I earned the awards. I didn't need to be validated from by them at this point. But the awards were secondary. We had did a project called Girard Street Apartments, 25 units. Ten of them were for chronically homeless people. And I remember this man, he was like... I never thought I could live in a space like this. We did a project in Baltimore. We're bringing in the furniture. It's this beautiful Kellex sofa with this nice cream, Arcom fabric. And we're bringing in the furniture. And they're like, is this furniture staying here? Is this furniture for us? Those are the awards. Capital Vista. We have this beautiful picture of a Kadir Nelson print in the common area with this little girl called Sweet Liberty, a young black boy in a Superman cape in the elevator lobby. And the rewards are people seeing that they deserve something elevated. And I'll be very, very clear that I'm not saying it looks luxury. It's elevated. Luxury is an illusion. But when the people walk through these spaces, when the housing developer says, wow, Kia, you and your team made this space look like a value and that the next three generations of people who will live in this affordable housing project know their worth, know they deserve something. Those are the rewards. As you're describing this to me, and I'm sort of placing myself there, I'm feeling like your spaces are very affirming. 
I can imagine that someone, especially someone who thought that they never could live in a place like that, mm-hmm. and they're walking down the halls and seeing black boys in Superman capes, and they're seeing themselves reflected back in this. Oh, absolutely. A, a space that's considered them, right? That's valued them in the creation of it. So it's it's taken care into consideration. It's taken their personalities into consideration. Absolutely. And it's so affirming. It's healing. It's healing. But here's the, the you know, what makes us different as a firm. We don't follow design trends. That's not our, that's not our jam. That makes sense. Trends are disposable, right? That's the opposite of affirming. Absolutely. But trends every step of the way, trends whitewash spaces. We at Determined by Design, we create spaces that reflect the history, culture, and stories of the communities. And in order for us to do that, our design research for any project, it doesn't start with the site. It starts with the land. What is the indigenous story that existed before the land was stolen and then bought and bought again? We search for the narrative of communities and we bring it to the forefront. And then we look for the the next demographic of people, the next heritage story. So we're constantly trying to bring in the cultural and ethnic narratives from the past into the present and we marry them together. That's how we make sure our spaces mirror the communities that they represent and the people who are in those communities. That's what's affirming. Your history, your story, it is still relevant and we're going to bring it to the forefront. Not Pantone's color of the year. (laughs) This is not going to be that. So this is beautiful. And it's also very, very, like you're rooting it back into the earth, which is gorgeous. Can you tell me like, what is the research like? How are you making sure you are reflecting the communities? I mean, you can learn history, but that does you still have to put it through a filter that understands the people. Oh, okay. So this is what our team does. We get a project. One, as a firm leader, I give my team time to do the research, right? We're not trying to rush through because of a deadline, right? We take a full 10 weeks in our schematic design process. The first two weeks of that alone is this deep dive. One team member will do the historical research. Another team member will do the community research, which is more present day. And then a third team member, and they will do a kind of context into the demographic of the neighborhood as it exists, right? So we bring together all this information. We always start with how did the community migrate? How did it migrate? How did it change? Starting with a native story that then ended up, maybe it went Croatian. Then there was a Creole narrative, depending on where the project is, because we do work all over the U.S. We're Mm -hmm. pulling all those threads for all this context. And then we're gravitating towards who were the makers? Oh, who was this famous person? What was he, what was he or she famous for? Oh, the first, this was made here. Those are the things that we're looking for. I'll give you an example. So we work on this project in D.C. It's called Berry Farm, one of the largest public housing authorities in the district. And, you know, it's in Berry Farm. It's called Hillsdale. It used to be a fishing village. D.C. is named 
for go-go music. The Junkyard Band, Eartha Kitt, all these famous people came from these projects called Berry Farms. It was this centralized fishing village for Native Americans. D.C. is known for Howard University and the Yard. Howard Schultz was one of the founding members of this housing development called Berry Farm. So we're kind of taking all these things. And then our concept before the project became opening the census to ascension. Because go-go music is this immersion of sight, touch, sound. It's full body. It's in Hillsdale. And we are slowly ascending this neighborhood. But then it's also capturing the history of it. That's how we get to our concept narratives. Not we wanted to create the mid-century modern juxtaposition of the indoor-outdoor I love, I love when you take it down. <laughs> when you take it down. <laughs> uh, my team member Sequoia says, this is our prayer and our intention for the community. So it has to start from their history. Um, and then we do like a word play um, as a team. And when we're doing this word play, we're throwing all the words out from our research words that gravitate to our soul. That's what we do in a very kind of historical point of reference, but then also from a point of feeling. When our team members are coming up with our concept statements, it's like, do you feel it? And I'm like, and we and we do this. I say, close your eyes, close your eyes. All right, now, now, now say it out loud. And the reason it's important for you to feel it, because when that development partner pushes back, it's that feeling. We fight for something when we feel it. So when we have development partners and making a decision that might be inequitable, I need them to fucking feel it to challenge and to educate our development partners. So it has to start from a feeling. It has to start from a place of intention. It has to start from a place of prayer, whatever that looks like. That's how we do what we do and create the spaces we, we create. You've just given the strongest explanation for how to know if your idea is truly worth advocating for. And if it is, you almost don't have to work so hard to convince people because it just vibrates from your very being because you know so firmly in your soul that there you know there's a reason for this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The key to business is, is this. People buy into people. So if every design decision we've made is rooted from the start, from inception, if the color story, the statement, if it is rooted in the history of people, you can always sell that. People will always buy into people. Our narrative is the people's narrative and history. And other firms are rushing to get them to a deliverable, rushing to show precedent photos of other interiors to say what theirs, how theirs can mimic this. And another blonde wood swooped curve thing with a cream interior to mimic that, that's replicating. We're about the people's narrative. 
all the way down to our concept imagery. Our concept imagery is powerful. It's impactful. It's of nature. It's of fashion. It's of faces. It's dynamic. It's in your face. My team member, Sequoia, she just presented a, a project and our concept was conjuring ripe heirlooms. It's in Miami. It's in the Overtown neighborhood. And we're presenting this to the real estate developer and the architects on the phone. One of the development members was like, I just moved to this neighborhood. And after her presentation, he goes, I knew none of this history about this town. Wow. And we're educating them through design, concept, color story. And this is relevant because... When we come to projects and I look at other affordable housing projects and they look like trash and they ugly and I'm being real firm on that. And I think to myself, why is that? Because you don't care enough because that's not your brother, your mother, your sister, or you have a living in that building. You will do the status quo because you don't see them as your people. That's oh, the problem. That's why design is inequitable in low income communities. I need my counterparts to care. And to do it from a place of feeling like if it ain't good enough for my loved one, it ain't good enough for this community either. They scared because we won't get the next project. We won't get the next billable hour. I had this architect say to me once, well, how did you get them to make all those changes? I told a better story than you. We, we can't do that. We can't bite the hand that feeds us. I bite it all the time and it keeps coming back because they see we are so impassioned. And our industry has become so fearful of not getting the next project or the next fee that they don't push their clients. And the fact that they still call them clients and not partners, you're not trying to do something bigger than yourself. You're just trying to get the next fucking check. I need partners to change the way communities are built. We don't say clients that determine by design. We got partners. And just like your partner in real life, if they do some fuck shit, you course correct them. You educate them. That's why we say partners. Yeah. And that sounds like you've built a life for yourself that's incredibly meaningful and also requires difficult conversations on the regular. All day. And that's okay, too. Yeah. Just to double back to your design ethos for a second, there's something that's very, very powerful to me because this is something that I I hold dear is, is this concept of story stewardship. It's why I started this podcast. It's why I built this platform to hold space for all of these different stories that need to be heard. I also teach design and I developed a class around narratives embedded in the built world because I think we need to all take those very seriously. And as the future designers and architects of this world, we need to be really designing those narratives consciously and intentionally, just like you're saying. I know that you've built education into part of your mission as well, not just in your day to day talking with your partners and the people that you need to get on board, but actually have developed workshops so that your design counterparts can do what you do Instead of running in fear. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So can you talk to me about that education piece for a second? Yeah. So literally I offer workshops to other firms, to community organizations, edu- academic institutions. And I literally teach them how to do our concept development process. I teach them that the exact same way we do it in Determined by Design. I teach them how to do it how to do the historical contextual research beyond the site, engaging in that historical narrative, how to do the wordplay. Now, I want you to imagine 
a room full of architects. Yeah, well, if we just stay still with the cliche kind of descriptor of an architect, 40 plus year old white man. And I'm asking them to close their eyes and feel the words <laughs> and feel it, feel it, guy, feel it for me. But that's what I take them through. I encourage them to tap into the feeling and the empathy that is inherently supposed to be embedded in every design discipline, architecture, landscape, lighting, right? There's empathy that has to exist. So while I'm teaching them our step-by-step process, I'm also reminding them that we are actually in service of the people and the communities that we create. And I think we forget that. We forget that in the stride of deliverables and all the other things, but that is what these workshops are. Well, I'm so happy to hear that that's part of what you offer because I really like to see your philosophy scale and really percolate out through the whole design industry. I think we should all be designing from the perspective of caring and people first the biggest misconception is people go like, I I say, you know, equity, affordable housing, low income communities. And they go, oh my God, are you a nonprofit? No, bro. I'm a very profitable business. (laughs) Like (laughs) both don't have to be like mutually exclusive. I'm profitable because I lead with prioritizing the people I serve. I'm profitable because I lead with prioritizing my team members, right? And their well-being and their mental health. I'm profitable because I prioritize people. I'm profitable because I have great relationship with my development partners. I push them. That is why I'm profitable. Um, And we do great, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. Our work is beautiful because it's rooted in the history of people, period. I love it. So I want to ask you some personal questions. I know we talked a lot about already. We got into your childhood and all of that. But now that you're a profitable, grown woman with like so many awards that we can't list them all and got 10 plus years of determined by design and 4,000, you know, underrepresented families being served. So clearly you, you have enough to be proud of. Do you feel it? Do you let yourself feel really proud of yourself? Uh, recently? Yes. Did you have to teach yourself to do that? Yes, I did. I had to, to really just realize like, I don't always have to keep chasing the next thing. Then what's next? This. And and it's just like, just take one and be like, man, I did that. A C student from Portsmouth, Virginia built a million dollar business. That's enough. That's it. I would probably say in the past uh, two years, and I love teaching. And it took the result of me going into academia full time forced me to realize it was, it's been very very toxic for a lot of reasons that forced me to realize I've actually, I've done enough. I don't have to do anything else. I will, but it has to feel good, but I'm very proud of what I've built and what I've accomplished. Let me tell you why I love that question because not my words, others. Now I'm a design thought leader. (laughs) (laughs) And at the end of the day, I'm just Kia. I'm human. I struggle with some of the same things that I like. I don't want to be put on a pedestal because then everyone will be like, I want to be like, not be like you. I'm successful because I show up as myself. That's the success. Like I don't have some heady design story with my grandmother was a designer and she did custom. De- no shade to anybody else's story, but mine's a little more raw than that. 
your story is enough for you to be your version of rape. You don't need to be like me. The world don't need two kids. Jesus. <laughs> Just you is enough. Just you is enough. I don't want to be this person on a pedestal. I'm approachable. Um, I take calls from people because I remember when no one would take my calls. I got a beast of a work ethic and an unwavering to the desire to make everybody feel seen. That's about it. That is enough because those are the most important things. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Thank you for being so candid, for sharing so much and so much spirit. Your design ethos comes through also in your delivery, in your embodied performance of what you do. You make us feel it. And you're a very powerful storyteller in that way. And I, when I say storyteller, I, d- I don't just mean your words. I mean the way you design and the way you hold space for story and honor story and educate the importance of story. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. We, we've created this thing like well, you can have feelings in the workplace and whatever. But yeah. I think if we felt the things more, we would fight for others in a different type of way. It's all right to get excited. It's all right to like, oh my, loud and like, it's okay. Cause that means you feeling something like, you, like you're excited about life and the thing that you're doing. Like you don't gotta be all reserved. And it's just like, no, feel it. Have fun. Be passionate about it. Be excited. No shade to our industry, but all this stuffiness and elitism and soft spoke is like, that's bullshit, yo. Who are you? <laughs> Who are you? People want to see who you are. I'm successful because people want to, people like me because they see me. There's no airs. There's no cut cards. Colorful language and all is me. That's the secret to success is ABC after school special as it is. Show up as you, yo, and have fun and feel it. Please feel it. I just can't thank you enough. I'm so invigorated right now. I've cried. I've laughed. <laughs> I've reconnected to my passion. You're the best. Thank, thank you, Kia. Thank you for having me. I appreciate. I appreciate you. I really do. I really do. This was a great conversation. I think I needed to have this conversation too. So thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Kia, including images of her work and a bonus Q and A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.